Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates. America competes. I think about symmetry a lot. If you'll indulge me a little, I'd like to tell you about it. Until the 70s, the only kind of crypto systems we knew about were symmetric systems. So, symmetric systems, that's where two people, Alice and Bob, have the same secret key to decipher the messages they send each other. You do it as kids. Pick Latin as an example. You can make the key to decode the message really complex. You could change it every hour if you wanted. But as long as Alice and Bob still need the same key to access a message, it's still a symmetric system. The most commonly used symmetric algorithm would be the Advanced Encryption System, or AES. Now, asymmetric systems use a public key to encrypt a message and a related private key to decrypt it. These systems are harder to crack, but gosh, they're usually a lot less efficient. The dark web's favorite communication encryption protocol is PGP, or Pretty Good Privacy Encryption. It's a combination of symmetric and asymmetric systems. You know, the source code for PGP was made public in 1991. Its founder, Philip Zimmerman, caught the attention of the FBI and the U.S. Customs Service because the source code went public. They tried to nail him for violating U.S. export regulations on cryptography. He was never convicted. But in 1995, the Bernstein v. United States case made it clear that the printed source code for cryptographic systems was protected as free speech by the U.S. Constitution. All of that to say, it's really hard to make math illegal. So, what are lawmakers to do? On that note, Etzle Iginbe Ide Episodie. That's a very complex world of the cyber criminals. Explain to them what a, what a DAO is or what DeFi is. These non-government actors doing foreign intelligence. How do you actually investigate crypto? We want special measures. International law. Privacy and anonymity are not bad. Funds transfers. Concept of Ethereum. Because, well, drugs. We've observed more and more threat actors engaging in illicit activity. The major players behind the darknet markets. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. This is Politico Tech. Today, I'm talking to Representative Jim Himes, the member of Congress who chairs the House Subcommittee on National Security, International Development, and Monetary Policy. He's one of the few people who can tell me how the sausage is made when it comes to lawmaking to combat cybercrime on the dark net. To start it off, the one sort of bill text that really caught my eye was the Special Measures to Fight Modern Threats Act. And that was specifically about prohibitions or conditions on fund transmittals and gave the Secretary of the Treasury more power to stop a financial transaction if it was linked to a money laundering thing, right? That's correct. I mean, the idea is, you know, the Treasury, through what are known as special measures, has long had the authority to incrementally go after banks and certain non-banks that are found to engage in money laundering. 
leading to the uh, sort of ultimate penalty, which is to list them essentially for sanctions, which has the effect, of course, of basically shutting an entity down uh, because, uh, you know, establishment financial institutions won't do business with listed entities. Special measures, the proposal that we made would simply expand that authority into the crypto realm. And it's worded in terms of money transmittal services, which are an important part of it. But the idea is that if there were an entity out there engaging in money laundering, engaging in illicit activity with proper safeguards, with proper sort of due process, if you will, the ability to review, the ability to appeal, which actually led to an initial moment of conflict with the industry. I think we've landed in a place where, you know, now the Treasury will have those authorities with respect to cryptocurrency exchanges, those kinds of businesses, but with good transparency, uh, meaning it can't be done in secret, and with good ability to exercise due process. So why is this issue right now worth devoting the resources of your office and your political capital? Well, it's part of a larger issue, which is trying to wrestle our way into a regulatory apparatus, which is, you know, analogous, really, to the regulatory apparatus that all of us are used to, but for a new technology. I think it's important, particularly in the context of people who say, maybe right, maybe wrong, that cryptocurrency will change everything, that, you know, you're going to have DAOs and DeFi businesses that will change everything. The reality is a lot of the problems are problems that we've been dealing with for a very long time. Uh, You know, if you can do transactions in secret, in pure anonymity, there are probably two categories of people who are attracted to that. There is the I would argue, smaller category of people who have a libertarian bent and they just like the idea of decentralized money with no surveillance. And, you know, look, that's sort of a philosophical stance. But the much larger group, of course, are people whose businesses depend on secrecy uh, and anonymity. And that's the rogues gallery of human traffickers and drug dealers and arms merchants. The idea is really no more complicated than applying the same level of transparency that may exist in the currently existing banking payment systems to this new payment system. There is one thing that specifically this legislation calls out that I think is new, which is the notion of ransomware attacks. I think that's the only place where cryptocurrencies are mentioned by name. And that's actually something I wanted to ask you to ground this legislation in the present. What makes legislation like this an imperative for the 117th Congress to pass? That's a really good question because ransomware is probably the the horrible experience that most people are familiar with. And whether it's the city of Baltimore, which you know was was held subject to a ransomware attack, and you know the city couldn't get its critical records to run the city, or the many individuals who have had their desktop computers, their photo library locked up by ransomware actors, this is a very pervasive problem. And the uh, mechanics of ransomware rely usually payment is almost always requested in cryptocurrency because of its ability to operate anonymously. You know, ransomware attacks are an annoyance to really, you know, almost existential in nature, right? That may be a little bit of an overstatement, but of course I'm thinking of Colonial Pipeline. One company, a pipeline company, is subject to a ransomware attack and all of a sudden Americans up and down the East Coast are paying a lot more for gasoline. So that's a, you know, clear and present danger, if you will. And it is probably a lot more pervasive than some of the other unsavory activities that occur in the general crypto asset realm. That makes a ton of sense. How do you see this legislation striking that balance between stopping capital losses due to cybercrime and the voices that say this is departmental overreach by the Treasury? There are many spectrums involved in hammering out legislation. This is one of those tensions. So how was the balance struck between those two tensions? 
Yeah, well, we can't really use the past tense yet, right? Because we haven't actually moved forward with any um, specific new laws that provide the regulators the authorities to do what they need to do. We're, we're, we're in the process of doing what Congress does, which is educating itself and having the debates and having the back and forth that hopefully eventually lead to good, to good law, which authorizes regulation. This is a pretty technical and esoteric topic. Congress and members of Congress are not on the cutting edge of, you know, what's happening in technology tomorrow. <laughs> Far from it, right? I have some colleagues who struggle with email, right? Um, and so, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny, but you're taking a culturally conservative group of people who probably get a lot of help from their staffs on technology and you're trying to explain to them what a DAO is or what DeFi is or, you know, this whole concept of Ethereum and how it could create a whole new, you know, payments and economic ecosystem. There's a lot of learning that needs to happen there. And it has happened. You know, the Committee on Financial Services on which I sit is negotiating a stablecoin regulation bill. Stablecoins are cryptocurrencies that are pegged to an asset, just like the U.S. dollar used to be pegged to gold. Now, that's just one part of the overall ecosystem. But, you know, that would have been unimaginable three years ago when nobody had any idea what a stablecoin was. I mean, there was a standard line in Congress. Every member of Congress who didn't know a thing about cryptocurrency when asked about this stuff would say, well, the question is, are stablecoins stable? But let's go back to special measures because it was actually a really interesting process. And I raise my hand and say I wasn't as vigilant as I should have been. We worked with the Treasury to come up with language that would authorize um, the Treasury to employ special measures against money transmittal services, cryptocurrencies. I didn't notice that they took out a couple of paragraphs in the existing law that required them to disclose entities after a period of time that they were uh, subjecting to special measures that closed off the routes of appeal. Kind of my fault. I should have seen it happening, but I didn't. But here's the fun part. You know, when we moved it forward, the uh, advocacy community in cryptocurrency is, um, shall we say, excited <laughs> or, or maybe maybe the right word is easily excitable. And social media lights up. Himes is trying to, you know, institute a, a Stalinist gulag state. I mean, it was just madness, right? And, and we looked at it and we said, oh, yeah, shoot, that's right. No, we want special measures, but we want them with all the due process and right of appeal and transparency that are used in the traditional realm. Politics in 2022 is hard to talk about without saying partisan at least once. Himes is what you might call a moderate Democrat. But for him, this stuff transcends party lines. It's hard to paint a partisan divide on all of the various issues that are in the sort of basket of cryptocurrency, crypto asset stuff. I mean, you sort of can, right? You know, Republicans are very suspicious of government. Uh, they're a lot more suspicious of a central bank digital currency than perhaps Democrats are because, you know, philosophically, the Republicans always kind of look to the private sector to provide uh, a good or a service, which is fine. That's their philosophical bent. So, you know, you can sort of suss out little ideological things like this. But when it comes to, you know, making sure that you can't have another colonial pipelines to making sure that terrorists don't have a, you know, wide open mechanism for the transmission of money abroad. When you look at what Silk Road was doing, you know, there's not really a partisan divide on whether any of that behavior is particularly good. Silk Road was in 2012. Bitcoin's been around for well over a decade now. We're talking about stablecoin. The original premise of this interview was to talk about Monero and privacy coin, like um, Monero, which pushed out an update that improves anonymity, what, two months ago? And so my question to you is basically, why did it take so long to come to the point where the Treasury is asking you, hey, please improve our powers so we can, you know, stop fund transmissals and weird situations? Why now? Why not already? <laughs> 
I find that a little bit funny because, um, you know, Congress is not exactly known as the uh, Johnny on the spot, you know, racing ahead of technological innovation institution, right? I mean, I'm chuckling because it took us, you know, 20 years to get an infrastructure bill done, which is about rebuilding bridges. I mean, you know, like everybody understands bridges, right? Nobody understands Monero. And so I'm sort of chuckling at the premise of your question, which is why has Congress been so slow? You know, there is a massive education process. And, and you know, let's face it too, a lot of the really nasty behavior in this realm, by which I define as, you know, ransomware, trafficking, human trafficking, drug dealing, terrorism, that stuff's illegal, right? And so in some ways, our law enforcement has a lot of the tools and in fact, have used the tool. Even the SEC, the SEC has been very aggressive about going after a different category of malfeasance, which is, you know, people doing fraudulent financial stuff. So even in the absence of Congress acting, you know, if you do really bad stuff, you know, the Department of Justice or some prosecutor is going to figure out a way to charge you. And so because of all those things, because Congress is a slow, is a slow moving entity and because the authorities are doing a reasonably good job of shutting down bad behavior, you know, Congress has hasn't had to act. Here's a counterexample. Like what makes Congress act fast? Well, you know, the financial meltdown of 2007, 2008, when millions of Americans lost their retirement funds and their their homes, Congress is like, oh my gosh, we got to fix this now. The crypto asset space lost $2 trillion in market cap over the course of the last year or so, uh, six months, really. $2 trillion. I mean, that's a staggering amount of money. And yet, you know, it wasn't mom and pop out there in America who lost their homes. And so I guess the argument I'm making is that there just isn't the intense demand push to act now, which may be good because, again, Congress is still very much in the process of learning about this stuff. But in 2022, and I ask you this because of the committee you chair, and I ask you this also because of the number of times cross-jurisdictional stuff came up in that piece of legislation, if you could succinctly explain the national security threats that you're seeing you referenced this, Chinese and other foreign bad actors, and you were referring specifically to ransomware, I believe, in that piece of legislation. But could you unpack that for me? Because it's so easy to have foreign bad actors fall under the umbrella of political fear-mongering, right? When that's not quite it in this case. There is a real and present threat, but I'd like to hear it from you. A lot of the bad behavior is not associated with a country, Some is, uh, and some is deliberate, right? And and by the way, in the United States, we don't do ransomware attacks, but, you know, we have a fairly powerful and competent cyber offensive capability. We can break stuff. We don't hold people's systems for ransom, but every country has a cyber offensive capability. And some countries, you know, it won't surprise you to know who they are, Russia, uh, you know, sort of maintain a much bigger toolbox than we're willing to do. And it's not just deliberate. Our NSA maintains cyber offensive capabilities. We can break things. The other thing that we don't do, which some countries do, again, Russia um, and, and some other countries, is look the other way or have a relationship with a bunch of guys in a building somewhere. You're not quite sure what they're doing, but they're sort of in the service of your political aims. You know, sort of quasi-state actors that are operating under the protection or under the complicitness of a, of a company. That happens too. And those are often agents of chaos. There was all kinds of conversation about were the colonial pipeline ransomware attackers protected by a country? We're pretty good at sussing that out. But a lot of this stuff is just the garbagey crime that sadly is lives in the non-virtual world too. It's drug dealers and traffickers and people who really want to figure out a way to get $100,000 to some terrorist group in Yemen. So 
Yeah, that's the challenge, really. That kind of makes sense. And it also sort of goes to the challenge of trying to legislate in a world where money doesn't move as slowly, maybe. I guess it hasn't moved slowly for a while now. But the Hydra takedown in particular, like part of the reason we got thinking about cross-jurisdictional stuff is because the web servers there were not in the U.S., but a lot of the cyber collectives that operated off of Hydra did target the U.S. So that was an Interpol operation. And I just find those fascinating when it comes to tech. Well, in some ways, it's the ultimate asymmetric threat, right? And what I mean by that is if you want to create a catastrophic crime of violence, you know, whether it's the 9-11 attack or, you know, you just want to undertake some terrorist activity, kill a bunch of people in a train station. So that's actually pretty hard to do if you're going to buy explosives or weapons. It, it's hard to do. You need a lot of networks. You need a lot of other people. Uh, and other people use cell phones and we can get a look at it, blah, blah, blah. You can create an immense amount of chaos through something like Hydra or through a more general cyber attack, which are very different things, obviously, with, you know, two engineers in a bedroom with a broadband connection, right? <laughs> you know, so, so you can create a lot of chaos in the virtual world using cryptocurrency setting up. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's not that hard to set up a dark net, you know, financial institution, if you will. It takes a couple, it takes some programming expertise. It is scary because of that asymmetric quality, 10 people or whatever. There's that word again, asymmetry. Congressman Himes hit on something that we touched upon in an earlier episode. The threat posed by cybercriminals doesn't rely on their actual numbers. What instills fear in the public is the scope of the problems they can cause despite their size. More details on this in a later episode. It's also because this stuff all lives on servers and networks, real anonymity is impossible. 20 years ago, before the advent of lots of cameras and stuff and tracking devices, you know, you could put a million dollars in cash in the trunk of your car and drive it from New York to L.A., just to give a silly example. And no one would ever be the wiser. And if you didn't leave evidence, you know, there would be no evidence of that. You can't do that online. You can't set up a mixer. You can't set up a cryptocurrency exchange, a darknet entity, without leaving all kinds of fingerprints on server logs and, and you know, IP addresses and all of that good stuff. So, in some ways, the malignant advantages for a bad actor uh, on the web are also disadvantages because, uh, you know, we've got the capability by we, I mean, law enforcement, government, et cetera, to find those, you know, those little bits of digital dust that point at bad actors. Yeah. Also, I really love the phrase digital dust and I'm absolutely using it. You mentioned catastrophic risk. That's such a good segue into the CART Act. And I have just one question the CART Act, it's taxation, right? And far be it for me to pretend to be a taxation legislative reporter. But I do have to wonder, the bill defines catastrophic risk as something, a risk of a loss that has a low likelihood of occurring, but would be large in amount. The bill never specifically mentions this, but do you see this bill applying to ransomware insurance providers? The U.S. is a healthy target for cybercrime collectives because there exists so much ransomware insurance, like there are deep pockets to pay out from. When I first read the bill, I was like, is Congress footing the bill for that sort of eventuality where you have a massive ransomware attack and you have an insurance company that has to pay up? Is the CART Act sort of paving the way for Congress to foot that bill? You know, it's hard to imagine a ransomware attack that creates a truly national catastrophe. Uh, it could happen, I suppose. But 
It's an interesting philosophical question because like it or not, the federal government, and I've seen this happen a couple times in my limited time in the Congress, like it or not, the federal government does act as the insurer of last resort, right? So in the financial meltdown of 2008, before I got to Congress, you know, the Congress mobilized immense amounts of money to effectively bail out the economy. Um, this, of course, happened during the pandemic, another catastrophic event. I mean, we put $5 trillion or so into the economy. Big hurricanes, uh, big weather events exceed the ability of individual insurance companies. So like it or not, and my more libertarian-minded colleagues do not like it, uh, you know, the government does serve in a catastrophe as the insurer of last resort. Now, I don't imagine that a, it's going to be a ransomware attack that gets us there, but a crippling cyber attack could certainly do that. I mean, let's imagine somebody developed the ability to shut down the uh, national grid in this country. I'm not even sure that's technically possible. Actually, the electrical grid in North America is divided into two major and three minor power grids. And taking out any one of these grids will cut power to a large chunk of the United States. The Pentagon worries about that scenario quite a bit, enough to spin out their own electrical microgrid pilot program for army bases. So Congressman Himes thought this scenario could arise not necessarily as a ransomware attack, which would then go into all the card act stuff, but from a straight up cyber attack. Anyway, my point is, you know, even in you know the northeast of the United States, if you shut down the grid for a period of three days, the losses would probably be beyond the ability of any insurance company to absorb. So, you you know, once again, you're looking at the government as the insurer of last resort. And I mean, remember the dynamic of insurance. You know, yes, you can get insurance for ransomware, but the more successful ransomware attacks there are, the higher the premiums will be, right? I mean, you know, there's no free lunch in insurance. The money comes in, the money goes out. So if you have a lot of money going out, that means people will be paying very, very high premiums. So we, you know, regardless of the existence of an insurance market, we have a strong incentive to make sure that those sorts of attacks are, are rare, not common. Next time, I travel across the Atlantic to talk to my colleague, Lauren Serulis, in Brussels. He covered the diplomatic angle of the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime and European law enforcement operations to take down darknet markets. It's been sort of this murky scene. It's always been a murky scene and sort of, you know, with a, a certain underground feel to it. There's the hacking culture that comes with it. That, to a large extent, is something that European law enforcement hasn't been comfortable with for a long time. And only now in the past years has really started to sort of become comfortable with. Over a virtual coffee, we're going to break down the similarities and differences between the American and European approaches to tackling cybercrime. I'm Moha Chatterjee. Thank you for listening. <laughs>